Blog Talk Radio. Now we have everybody. Yay! Friends on Facebook, our friends at the Vibe Radio Network. Hey, Cat. Hey, Cat. Even we're all present. Cryptids. Cryptids. Here in the counter court. Oh. But yeah, we're back on a cruise ship. Uh, no details. I hope everybody's had a good last couple of weeks. My computer is being a little slow getting up and running here, so I might be a little behind on the chat. But we'll get it sorted out because it happens. Hello, Nico. All right, Nico, you ready for story time? Nico's from Sweden. Right there. Can you light out? There we go. Good boy. Good boy. Okay, this one's going to be interesting. Okay, so as you all can see, I'm slightly hindered tonight. Well, for a month. I broke her. Not intentionally. He caught me as well. It broke me. It's not broken. It's a double spring. Um, but, yeah, it's made life a little interesting. <laughs> to say the least. I can't do things I normally do. <sighs> Well, it's okay. You, you saved me from breaking my bum. Which was more important? That's debatable. <laughs> a bruised bum would heal faster. Well, it's healed by now. I probably still would have had a bruise with a bathing suit on. You probably would have. Yeah. Okay. But we would have gotten, would have gotten through it. But, yeah, I don't know what's going on with the uh, computer here this evening. So be patient with the chat. If, you, uh, if you're dropping us notes in there, and I see some people are, which I can't read from here because even with my glasses on, it's I can't see quite that well. But it is what it is. Oh, are you getting your phone? I'm getting my phone. Okay. That works. I think you can at least keep up on that. All right. There you go. And like, or if you because, you know, thumbs and small keyboard. Yeah, we'll see how this works. I don't know what's going on with the computer. There was a Update for something recently, although that might have been Iowa. All right, so we're going to kind of bounce around America today with some cryptoids. When I was doing this um, research, planning for part two and three, um, and I was looking for unique cryptoids for each state. Uh, I do not want to hit the big ones. The foot is in every single state except for Hawaii. Um, so, yeah, we left it put off. A couple of cousins on here, so we left it put off. Um, but, yeah, so we're going to bounce around a couple of states. Some of these you may have heard of. Some of them you may not have heard of, which I found very interesting when I actually came across their stories and Chris was uh, trying to make it a little more interesting uh, with the back research uh, after I, you know, did the initial put together the script. That was really easy. Yeah, I don't know what it's going tonight. That's not all my research stuff, maybe that Research for the next one. Anyway, uh, so we're going to actually start um, up in Alaska. Uh, and Chris and I are hoping maybe we'll see one of these. Possibly, hopefully. Maybe this summer we'll see one of these. So this is the Ware Otter. Uh, along the coast of Alaska, there looks a Bigfoot semi-aquatic cousin known as the Kushtaka which translates from the single-lit language to mean land otter meow. These creatures are prominent figures in the indigenous folklore along the coast of Alaska. According to the legend, the Kushtaka are a species of large, hairy, humanoid figures that have otter-like facial features in most depictions. Basically, imagine Bigfoot otter mashup and you've got the idea. The Kushtaka also have an ability to shape shift, so how extensive that ability varies from story to story. In some variations, the legend of the Kushtaka can only shift between a Bigfoot otter form and a human form. In other variations, it's able to shift freely between many different forms. The more sensible claims describe it as being more like a demon than a flesh and bone cryptoid. Uh, but it's got a very distinctive call that is described as a high-low, high-whistling chatter. There are a few different variations on the legend of the Kushtaka. First, the Tinkalet people believe that it is an evil creature. 
or if it's not evil, it's at least very cool. Uh, the Tengla lore the Kushtakam revolving around them playing tricks and luring sailors and small children through their cold, watery gray. They're apparently able to make sounds that resemble crying babies or screaming women to lure the prey into the ocean where they can then kill them using their claws to rip and tear them apart. Sorry, funny, but I just had dinner. Another tale, um, they are described as being helpful, rescuing those who have wandered too close to the water or gotten lost. In these tales, Pistaka hunter images of a lost person's family. These images will calm the lost person down, but then the Pistaka turns the lost person into one of its own kind. While the transformation process is never really described, it does allow for the individual to now survive the harsh climate. While the origins of the Krishna remain a mystery, we do have some helpful things to know to ward them off and protect yourselves. This gets a little gross. I'm just warning you now. <laughs> According to many sources, they are afraid of dogs, and a dog's bark will make the Krishna transform back into its main honor-like form. Dog bones can also be used to defend against it. The same can be said for copper, and some stories claim that the Kustaka shy away from fire and urine. That's right, I said urine. We don't know why. We didn't ask. We didn't try to figure this out. We didn't even want to know how somebody figured this out. Some things are better left unknown. Just that. Well, there are not many forlorn, uh, long-form details about the encounter with the Kustaka uh, specifically, there are tons of monster tales along Alaska's coastline. In fact, Thomas Bay along Alaska's inside passage about halfway between Uno and Kirsten has been home to many of these monster tales. And that's actually where Chris and I are hopefully going to stop. Um, it's actually become known as devil country because of the, all these tales. So if you ever find yourself on the Alaska cruise, you'll probably go back there. And keep your eyes open to keep the camera ready. The creatures of the devil's country are described as being about four foot tall, having distinctly non-human features with notable claws. The earliest of these encounters began in the year 1900 with Harry Klopp. Klopp and three prospectors allegedly encountered these unknown creatures at a lake in the Alaskan archipelago. And they came away with the, uh, from the encounter alive to share what they saw. A quarter of a century later, in 1925, a fur trapper in the same era, area noticed his dog had gone missing. He went into the wilderness to search for it, and he was never heard from again. There are also several purported sightings of the Kushkitka that began with the witness thinking that they were looking at a regular but adorable river otter frolicking in the water. However, one of those would-be otters would then stand up on its hind legs, acknowledge the person, shattering their cute little river otters illusion. As with most cryptid creatures, it's possible that people are just having unusual encounters with not so unusual wildlife. But is it wise to automatically dismiss these encounters as a product of overactive imagination? It's a question you certainly will spark a very positive debate with. One thing is for sure, we would suggest that however, or whenever you are talking about cryptos and wildlife and encountering them, give them space. It's for your own benefit, after all. <laughs> oh, are we up and running, Oh, Finally, um, apparently Firefox is being uncooperative tonight. Well, that was all right. I'm, I'm using a different browser <laughs> with mixed results, apparently. Oh, dear. It's freezing. Apparently. Uh, I don't know. We still seem to be live. People still seem to be interacting with us. So technology, technology, at least on our end. Yay! Hopefully, y'all can still hear us and see us just fine. I'm assuming you can. Yep. Were there any questions that you did see? Uh. No Bigfoot in Hawaii. No, no. Apparently, he doesn't swim that far. No. Uh, everybody, sorry about your hand. Thank you. And. Yes, people love wear otters. Yeah. I thought that was a fun one. Yeah. At this point, I'm 
we're just going to roll with it. Okay. Hey. <laughs> All right. We are going to go ahead and uh, take our next encounter down a much different path. Coming back to the mainland. Yeah. Yes. But um, this revolves our the lower 48. Alaska's mainland. There's a Canada in between. Details. But anyways, this next one revolves around a singular event in Falkville, Alabama in October of 1973. One would also be hard-pressed to try and explain this away as a case of mistaken wildlife. One night, young Falkville Chief of Police, Jeff Greenhaw, received a call that would change his life forever. An anonymous call to dispatch from a frantic caller about a UFO in a field just outside of town. Greenhaw, who rarely gives interviews, sat down for an interview with Redwater Filmworks to discuss what he saw that night. He said, I was hired in January of 1973, and this all came down October 17, 1973. He would resign from his position in the weeks thereafter. But what did he see? His first thought was that he was just simply going to be dealing with, quote-unquote, an idiot. He explained, after, after that, things were just so strange. It wasn't quite real. This wasn't really happening, but it was happening to me. And why me? He was looking at a figure, slightly taller than six feet tall, wearing a reflective material that Greenhaw described, saying, my initial thoughts were maybe aluminum foil, but there were no pieces around there after it was all over. I don't know what to believe at that point. He described the suit in his report from that evening, saying it looked like his head and neck were kind of made together. He was really bright, something like rubbing mercury on a nickel almost, but just as smooth as glass. Different angles, different lighting. The movement of the figure was not human-like, according to Greenhaw. Whenever I think about it, when I was a child, I used to watch the movie Lost in Space, he said. The robot in the movie... It kind of resembled and reminded me of that to some extent. Greenhaw grabbed his Polaroid 2 camera and stamped four photos of whatever was standing in front of it. Before he took the photos, he did speak to the figure, and he explained, I said something to the effect of, howdy, stranger, and there was no response at all. I didn't push my luck. At that point, I reached in and turned the blue lights on in the patrol car and seen how reflective the material really was. Then when I looked back, it was moving away from me. So I decided to chase it down, and if I have to, run it over. That didn't happen either. He took the photos and laid them out on the console of the patrol car. When he looked back, the figure was moving. He said, it wasn't moving like you or I would move. It's like it had springs on its feet or something. The strange being was said to have run away at speeds exceeding human capabilities. Greenhaw pursued the figure in his patrol car, and although he reached 35 miles an hour in the field he was in, it wasn't fast enough to catch the figure. Greenhaw would eventually lose sight of the figure after crashing his patrol car. The shiny creature then faded into the darkness, leaving Greenhaw to wonder what had just happened to him. Greenhaw had the four photos he took in a safe place for several years following the encounter, but he claims that almost 10 years later to the date, someone broke into his home and stole the four pictures. He found the police report in 1983 regarding the break-in. Also missing were his service revolver and a shotgun. He said of the photos, I took them out and looked at them frequently for the 10 years that I had them. I thought, that's really weird. The only three things I had with me that night, the shotgun in the car, the service revolver, and the pictures, all three of them came up missing. People made life difficult for Greenhaw after he recounted his experience from that night. People who were supposed to be his friends, the only thing that he found out about them is that he really couldn't trust anyone. Greenhaw withdrew and pretty much ran and got in, you know, ran in, uh, melted in seclusion in society. He went places to try and get away from it all. Greenhaw never sought financial gain from the encounter. If anything, sticking to his accounts from that strange autumn evening has made his life incredibly difficult and left him isolated and ridiculed by many. Whether you believe it or don't, uh, whether you believe or don't believe that Greenhaw's encounter was with an extraterrestrial being or, as it is better known today, the Alabama metal man, one thing is certain. 
he definitely witnessed something strange in the field that night. I say it's a silver surfer. Comic folks come to life? Why not? Why not? Inspiration had to come from somewhere. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, so we're going to pop back down to um, Arkansas after this and the Ozark Tower. The, uh, uh, yeah, I'll probably have to reboot at some point. But if I do, I think I'm going to lose connection on some things. But it's okay. Anyways, but, uh, questions, per se. No questions. Okay. Um, so moving along into the Ozarks. Now, if you ask me, the Ozarks just scream, you're going to find something weird here. Just the way it is. Um, the Ozark Howler is a mysterious creature reportedly living deep in the woods of the Ozarks. It's a territory that extends from southern Missouri to northern Arkansas, and sightings have been reported over in Oklahoma and Texas. Also known as the Ozark Black Howler, the legend has been passed down by generations of the locals who have heard things that they could not describe and have seen things that couldn't be described as any animal you would expect to find in the heart of the Ozark Wilderness. It's typically described as being around the size of a bear with thick body, stocky legs, black shaggy hair, and having prominent horns. Most agree it's either a black or dark in color, and its cry is described as being a combination of a wolf howl and an elk's bugle. Skeptics claim that it's an eastern cougar, a black bear, or some kind of wolf or feral town. Sightings can be officially recorded since the 1950s, although many of the Ozark families have passed on their stories from their parents and grandparents experiencing the chill of seeing the Ozark power well before that time. Between 2005 and 2010, the howler was spotted several times. A family living north of Van Buren in Boston Mountains or Crawford County set out trail cams after spotting what they thought was a cougar. The images they supplied to a Fort Smith television station appeared to be uh, showing a big cat similar to a cougar. The problem is, is that the wildlife officials maintain there's not a breeding population of cougars left in Arkansas. While it's possible there might be individual big cats living in the mountains, the regularity of the sightings across the wide geographical era, area makes it difficult to believe that those few cougars could be responsible for all the encounters. The howl, as you might expect, is the hallmark of the Ozark howler. It has the sound being described as very deep and guttural, as well as high-pitched howls. Others have said that it's most unearthly scream and half-human. Well, one of the most common descriptions of the sound is like the screams of a woman. Those who have heard the screams pierce through the night never forget the chill that runs up their spine and the feeling of dread that washes over them. Excuse me, I have a Vincent who wants to play that. <laughs> Some claim that the sounds are made by animals commonly found in the region. They point to the screams and howls of animals like red fox, fisher cat, and even fighting raccoons. There is a consistent thing about the Ozark Howler. It's the inconsistency of the known animals that people have tried to attribute it to. Setting aside the known animals of the Ozarks, let's try to have a look at the Ozark Howler from a different angle. In the early days of homesteading in the Ozarks in the mid to late 1800s, Scottish, Irish, Welsh, and English settlers moved into this area. And of course, they brought with them their ancestral stories and mythologies. One such story was that of the Cookson, a mythological hound that is feared as a harbinger of death. The feathers believe that the hound would come to bear away the soul of a person to the afterlife, very similar to the Grinch Reaper. According to Scottish folklore, the Cookson is said to be the size of a young bull with the appearance of a wolf. Its fur is shaggy. It's usually cited as being dark green, although sometimes white. The tail is described to be long and either coiled up or braided. Its paws are described as being the width of a man's hand. The Kutsis has also made uh, thought to make its homes in the clefts and the rocks of the highlands and also to roam the boars and the highlands. According to legend, the creature is capable of hunting silently but could occasionally let out three terrifying bays and only three that could be heard from miles away, and those listening to it 
could even hear it as far out to sea. It was said that those who heard the banging of the footsteps must reach uh, safety by the third bark or be overcome with terror to the point of death. Given the fear that people have at hearing the cries of the howler, old world mythology and modern day experiences are starting to blend together. Adding to another shade to the howler, some people have seen a connection between old world myths and ancient stories of the Native Americans who inhabited this region. Natives told stories of saber-toothed tigers that used to roam the land, as though they would have been gone for thousands of years. From combining these stories of the tiger and the settlers' tales of otherworldly creatures that scream and carry off the souls of the dead, might have all blended together and outcome our Ozark power. Many people also just dismiss this as a hoax, as a college student's idea of a joke. But with the Howler encounters dating back 200 years, there are many people of the Ozarks who don't dare dismiss this creature as a product of near imagination. No. Very good question. Do we actually believe that these things exist? There's a lot of things that are undiscovered out there, in my opinion. Um, There's a lot of things that we just haven't found yet or we haven't been able to document yet. Yeah. So do we necessarily believe the sensationalized version of um, of some of these stories, the ones that ultimately become local myth and folklore? Mm-hmm. Strictly speaking, no. I think that they make fascinating stories, and I think that there certainly is a grain of truth in a lot of them. Yeah, there's something there, but whether it's Bigfoot or the Wear Honor or the Howler, we don't know. Yeah. Nobody's caught it. It could very well be that people are seeing something that has not been encountered before or, uh, uh, you know, documented in detail, uh, or it could be, um, you know, uh, kind of an everyday creature that gets mistaken for. Yeah. Um, and you know, when something. you see things in the shrubbery and the bushes in the distance, you don't get the details through your sight that you necessarily need to correctly identify something. Uh, very ex- an excellent example that we do not have in this episode, I think we've mentioned it before, though, is, of course, the Mothman. Yes. Mothman, very, very popular folklore figure um, in the kind of tri-state area of Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, up that, up that way, particularly in West Virginia, though. As a matter of fact, was it Morgantown? Morgantown. Morgantown. Uh, the museum. It a museum and a massive statue of the Mothman there. Now, do we really think that this was, there is truly a Mothman? Um, probably probably not. not. It was probably a rather large bird of prey with red eyes that were being reflected in our light. But, like a, a massive, like a very large barn owl or something to that effect. But I think that's an excellent example of something, you know, maybe somebody saw the biggest barn, barn owl that has ever existed or something like yeah. that. So, but it's fun to tell stories about them. Yeah, so it's a great story for the campfire. Yep. Got here. All right. So that is, uh, oh, her father, uh, Amy, who asked the question, who has uh, since passed away, um, has swore that he saw the Mothman. That's cool. That is very cool. And and also, I mean, look at it. We have the New New Jersey Devil as well, very similar creature. Um, Even here locally in Virginia, we have the Snallygaster that partly comes from a Pennsylvania Dutch or a Dutch background. Uh, uh, it's yeah, it, it's um, yeah, mainly it's mainly rooted in the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, mythology. So if you go up to Pennsylvania, and you'll sometimes see the massive red barns, and they have seven pointed stars painted on the side. Those seven pointed stars were intended to repel or drive away the Snallygaster. But um, yeah, no, it's a very good question, and I... And, I mean, just looking at mythology from all types of uh, people out there, it's fascinating to dive into them. And they were... I've always done stories to explain things that we just didn't know about yet. And so as we grow as a community, as a society, and our science and our other things, technologies, we start to explain these things, and that mythology gets lost. But we still have other things that haven't been explained through science or technology, and so the, the mythology is still there, or it's evolving. Yeah. 
but I will say, uh, yeah, it's uh, Amy. Now I'll put it in, type it in here too. If you are willing to share and discuss your um, your father's um, encounter with the Mothman, we'd love to hear about yes, it. Yes, so I will. We, the Mothman Museum is on our bucket list. Yes, we have not been there yet, but we will be. We will get there one day. But that is really cool. So. Oh, but yeah, the next one that we actually do have on the show tonight is um, we're not going to be going very far from the uh, Ozarks and up at all. As a matter of fact, from the woodlands and the mountains of the Ozarks, we're just simply going to go ahead and hop into the White River. Now, this is sourced in the Boston Mountains, which is a part of the Ozarks, and it's right there along the Missouri-Arkansas state line. And flowing from the Ozarks to the southeast, the White River eventually feeds into the Mississippi River. But before you get to the mighty Mississippi, you will come across numerous towns and cities where people whisper amongst themselves about the creature that lurks in the depths of the White River. The White River monster is one of Arkansas's premier mysteries. Since 1915, the monster has appeared several times and has become a local legend. The first documented case of something strange in the river dates to December of 1912 when an Arkansas newspaper reported that timber workers floating rafts of cedar on the White River below Branson, Missouri, had seen something large and strange on the bottom. At first, they thought it was a boulder, but then they became convinced that it was a gigantic turtle. They estimated that it had to weigh about 300 pounds. The report of the big river monster created quite a sensation amongst the sportsmen at Branson, and a local angler organized a party to go and capture it. A lack of follow-up reporting suggests that the expedition ended in failure. And 12 years later, the monster of the White River showed up further downstream in Arkansas. According to some accounts, a little rock woman described seeing it surface with a blowing noise. She described it as gray with some kind of strange hide. The creature earned itself the nickname Whitey, much in the same way that the Loch Ness Monster is affectionately known as Nessie. Sightings of Whitey continued sporadically for years until 1937. On July 1st of that year, Bramlett Bateman, owner of a plantation near the river, saw the monster. He reported it as having gray skin and being as wide as a car and three cars long. As news, news spread of this latest sighting, construction of a huge rope net to capture the monster began. The monster had been seen in an eddy, so a diver was brought in to search for it. However, Whitey was not captured, and construction of the net stopped because of the lack of money and materials. In 1971, the sightings began again when somebody reported seeing a gray creature with a horn sticking out from its forehead. Other witnesses described it as having a spiny back 20 feet long. Later, a trail of three-toed, 14-inch prints was found in the White River area. Crushed vegetation and broken trees were evidence that something large had passed by, and it was assumed that the tracks belonged to Whitey. In 1973, the legislature signed into law a bill by State Senator Robert Harvey creating the White River Monster Refuge along the White River. The area is located between the southern point on the river known as Old Grand Glaze and the northern point on the White River known as Rosie. It is illegal to harm the monster inside the refuge. While there have been no sightings, theories about Whitey abound. It is hypothesized to be anything from a huge fish to an elephant seal, though none of the quote-unquote logical theories can fully explain the appearance of the White River's mysterious creature. Sorry, I had to scoot out there, but the boys have found stink bugs in the house lately, and I wanted to make sure it wasn't another one. It wasn't another one, was it? It was not. Okay, good. It was a piece of strawberry. Let's see. I think we're good. No, no, uh, no questions. No Patrick, Patrick wants to pet the turtle. Of course. All right, so we're going to bounce out to California now. Um, and this is one I have heard um, through the grapevine when I was living out in Arizona. I heard people talk about this. Uh, it's known as the Dark Watchers. From the uh, waters of Arkansas, again, we fly west to the mountain, mountainous woodlands of California. The coastal Santa Lucia Mountains run for over 150 miles from Monterey County to St. Louis at Pico County. The western slopes of the mountains are covered with ponderosa pines, 
St. Lucia Fir, and Coastal Redwood. But the mountains rise into the California skies with an endless ocean before them, and shadowy figures are sometimes seen to materialize on the afternoon horizon above them. These are the dark watchers. The first people to speak of dark watchers were the Kamush uh, Indians, who once lived the 200-mile stretch between Malibu, California, and Casa Robles. The tales of the dark watchers, watchers are often attached to the Kamush people of California, but apparently these indigenous Americans don't actually have anything quite like the specters in their folklore. When European settlers first came to the region, they too saw these giant human silhouettes that stand on ridges and seem to stare across the mountains. When watched themselves, the dark watchers fade from the sun. Known to 18th century Spanish settlers as Los Vigilantes Oscuros, the dark, or the dark watchers, these featureless silhouettes appear like witches with brimmed hats and walking sticks in hand. Oral tales across generations warn that approaching these specters could result in one's disappearance. The legend has it that these humanoid creatures rarely appear to anybody who is carrying a gun or is dressed in weatherproof clothing, only revealing themselves to people who wander the mountains in more old-fashioned garb. Folklore warns that while dark watchers may make it, make it their mission to sternly observe those in the mountains below, it is wisest to turn away, and those who dare to approach the figures vanish into oblivion. No, sir. No daiquiri for you. Oh, but I want this. He does want this. The <laughs> <laughs> so modern science has suggested that the dark watchers might simply be the result of a hallucination. The phenomenon is no less mystifying. Unfortunately, tales of the dark watchers are about as vague as the shapes themselves. The 20th century authors like John Steinbeck added their own mythos around the phenomenon. Like many other California writers, Steinbeck grew up on the stories of the Dark Watchers. His old mother would tell him how she would bring food to the mountains as an offering to the creatures, only later to see flowers in their place. Other writers, like Central California poet Robinson Jeffers, had added to the legend of the Dark Watchers through his own imagination. Jeffers described the Dark Watchers as forms that look human to human eyes that are certainly not human. He noted they can come from behind ridges to watch, and they are known to emerge from the quiet twilight before they melted into shadows. While there's no physical evidence that proves these figures are anything more than a visual anomaly, many people have snapped intriguing photos of them. From these photographs, some scientists have tried to determine what it is that people think they have seen. One such theory is that a dark watcher is simply the result of pareidolia, a psychological phenomenon during which human brains seek out recognizable or familiar patterns and shapes in an otherwise alien or unclear image. You're trying to logic it. Think about unconsciously looking at the clouds and saying, I see a duck or something like that. It's basically the same and thing. Except your, it's, your, it's your subconscious doing it for you. Yeah. An example of this phenomenon uh, can be found in the Hartz Mountains of Germany, where locals talk of a Brocken specter. The name after the regional Brocken peak and the phenomenon sees the observer's magnified shadow plastered across the clouds. The mist, meanwhile, amplifies the shadow's size before it evaporates. Others believe the phenomenon is caused by infrasound. sound. Infrasound is the sound between 7 and 19 hertz, just below the range of normal human hearing. It can be generated by wind, among other things. In 2003, psychologist Richard Wiseman and several of his British colleagues conducted an infrasound experiment. In it, they subjected some 700 people to a, in a, to a concert featuring four pieces of music, two of which contained 17 hertz tones at a volume at just the edge of human hearing. As a result, 22% of the audience reported feeling anxious, uneasy, or fearful. Others reported a pressure on their chest or chills running up and down their spine. Wiseman told British Association for the Advancement of Science 
These results suggest that low-frequency sounds can cause people to have unusual experiences, even though they cannot consciously detect the infrasound. Of course, many encounters with the dark watchers might also be just the shadows of swaying trees. Curiously, these purported beings are always encountered at high altitudes where oxygen supply to the brain is tempered. Could the dark watchers be simply a hallucination or a widespread misconception about the world we live in? Or perhaps one day a team of experts will venture out to the Santa Lucia Mountains and return with irrefutable evidence that the dark watchers are real. And that the shadowy creatures that we see are hopefully will remain and peace with us. Pretty cool if there are up there. That is cool. That would be cool. Maybe that would be eternal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm making all the links tonight. Yep. Now we're going to Hawaii. Nice. Your, your subconscious is telling you that you want to watch some Marvel movies. Hmm? <laughs> well, I mean, all of the trailers are coming out. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's going to be good stuff coming out. Uh, anyways, so yeah, we are going to go ahead and basically from the peaks of the mountains of California, we're going to go ahead and launch ourselves further to the west. So we've talked about some interesting things in Hawaii. Hawaii is fascinating. And you understand why I might want to go live there. <laughs> and so uh, Hawaiian legend has it that many centuries ago, the, is it? Do you think it's Menahunes? Menahunes. Menahunes. Okay. The Menahunes were a mischievous group of small people who lived hidden in the forests and valleys of the islands before the first settlers arrived from Polynesia. These Menahunes, who roamed the deep forest at night, were said to be about two feet tall, though some were as tiny as six inches. They enjoyed dancing, singing, and archery, and their favorite foods were bananas and fish, which I suppose... I mean, you eat what you have. Yes. Bananas and fish. That's the one problem with going to Hawaii for you is fish. fish. Your yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, something else. Now, the Medihune have been known to use magic arrows to pierce the heart of angry people, igniting feelings of love instead. They also enjoy cliff diving, and according to local lore, they were very intelligent, extremely strong, and excellent craftsmen. They were rarely seen by human eyes, and they are credited with mighty feats of engineering and overnight construction. Which is why Chris likes these guys. These industrious master builders used their great strength to build temples, fish ponds, roads, canoes, and houses. One such structure they are believed to have built is Kikaloa which also also known as the Menahune Ditch, a historic irrigation ditch that funnels water from the Waimea River on Kauai. Another one of their amazing feats is the legendary overnight creation of the Alakoko Fish Pond in Kauai, which archaeologists estimate to be around 1,000 years old. It's said that they built the Alakoko Fish Pond for a princess and her brother. The shy but strong group lined up in a double row which stretched 25 miles to distant Makawai. The workers passed stones hand to hand to build the pond. They worked at night so as to not be seen by others, cutting, transporting, and fitting stones for their projects in a long bucket brigade. If they were discovered, their work would have to be abandoned. The men here were promised no one would watch them at work, which is carried out after dark. However, one night the royal siblings snuck up and watched the thousands of Menahune at work, only to fall asleep. At sunrise, the Menahune discovered them and turned them into twin pillars of stone that can be seen today in the mountains above the fish pond. Interrupted by the sun, the Menahune left two gaps in the fish pond wall. Many generations later, Chinese settlers filled the gaps to raise mullet, but the uh, stonework that closed the gap was far inferior to that of the mystical Menahim. Another description that has been passed down in local folklore is the, of the three Menahim of Anawayo. Anawayo? Okay. We're going to go with that. Uh, well, Anawayo is a forest in the north side of Halkala Crater. Helikea. Helikea? Helikea, yep. You're the one that's been Hawaii. Why am I, why am I reading this? Uh, anyway, the three men in you were called uh, Alulu, Molawa, 
and Ilu. All the other Menihu living in Hawaii knew them well because they possessed very unusual powers. Alulu means to tremble, and it seemed like this little man was always cold. But his magic gift was that whenever he would start shaking, he would become invisible and could travel anywhere without being detected. Ilu in Hawaiian means quick and nimble, and whenever Ilu moved, he was so quick that he disappeared and no one could follow him. Aloha's name means lazy. But what most people didn't know was that whenever he appeared to be sleeping or lazy, his magical self became imperceptible and he would go around the island and do good deeds. Even though the Menahum were said to be displaced when the first settlers arrived in Hawaii, some people still believe that the Menahum are still roaming the islands, carrying out trips on people. Indeed, and get this, in an 1820 census of Kauai, listed 65 people as many here. Official documentation, we have them from 1820. Other Hawaiian mythology records refer to a few other forest-dwelling races. The Noao, who were large and wild hunters descended from the Lunua, the Mute people, and the Wa people. One thing you don't do is anger them, like this following ill-fated trio. Ellen, her boyfriend Brad, and their friend John got a little high one night and went out on Hawaii. Well, the one might say that they had just had a bad trip. What they experienced together terrified them to their core. They drove to an isolated beach under a clear, moonlit sky on the north shore, south, excuse me, south shore of Hawaii when they began to notice something wasn't right. <clears throat> trying to spell the healthy atmosphere, they lit a fire on the beach to cast some light on their surroundings. And then the horror began. The rocks and roots and trees around them looked like gnarled, grotesque faces, a chilling sight, but one they tried to explain away as a trick of the shadows. <clears throat> as Brad built a fire, Ellen and John walked, out, walked down a footpath through the tall grass where they started seeing the shadows of small people. Frightened, Ellen and John hurried back to the fire. They found that they were right next to a hayu a pre-contact place of worship for Hawaiians, kind of like an altar. Ellen was none too happy that Brad would bring her and John to such a spiritually charged place in the middle of the night. Growing paranoid that they had upset something ancient by their presence, Ellen and John decided to walk to the altar and offer the only food they had brought with them, a pear, as a gift. As they approached the uh, altar, Ellen found that she couldn't go any closer and stopped. The atmosphere felt charged to an oppressive degree, like something was growing increasingly impatient with their presence. Ellen and John said a prayer out loud, stating their respect in that they were giving a food offering. John walked into the grass to deposit the pear and disappeared. A few moments later, Ellen heard something running through the grass. It was John. He was panting and seemed very alarmed. He said he'd heard people walking in the grass, and together they listened for a while, now both getting alarmed. They clearly heard the sound of someone running fast through the grass, and it wasn't the wind. Everything else was still. The largest animal in the area would be a wild pig, and Ellen was absolutely certain that this was no pig. Engrossed in the sound, they almost didn't notice as the faces in the surrounding environment were becoming more pronounced. The roots now made full bodies, and the trees started to look like people or spirits. The two watched as three dead trees near the altar turned into bluish-gray men in robes with vertical headdresses made out of sticks. The shaman-like figures didn't walk or move their limbs like a human would, but they seemed to be aware of Ellen and John's presence. The shaman's faces seemed alive, or but grotesque, their mouths opening, expressions mournful. As this was happening, the sounds of movement in the grass became closer and faster. Ellen and John decided it was past time for them to be gone. They demanded that Brad extinguish the fire, and as they waited for him to do so, Ellen watched his faces appeared in the night around him, the swollen, pumpkin-like faces of hags. Terrified, Ellen turned to face their truck, eager to get in and gone from the place. As she looked at the reflection in the back window of the truck, Ellen saw the dying fire, herself, John, and two malformed women approaching Brad. The women seemed to be holding onto Brad's waist as he moved around. They were flying or whipping around him as he sought to tamp down the remaining embers. 
Ellen grabbed John and turned him to look at the reflection. To that point, John had been relatively calm, but when he saw the reflection, he too succumbed to the terror. They dove into the car, and Ellen closed her eyes as Brad got behind the wheel and drove down a service road and back toward civilization. As they moved away from the ancient site, John tried to assure Ellen that it would all be okay, that the horror they felt would go away. But it didn't. The trio saw two uh, saw ghost-like figures, the Menahune, and nature spirits during their drive home. Although Ellen looks back on the events of that evening and wants to assign some natural explanation for her experiences, the fact that she and John shared the experiences makes her wonder. She knows that while some of the things they individually saw were simply drug-induced hallucinations, it doesn't explain the things that they saw and heard together. Whether it was real or not, it is never wise to trespass on the land of ancient creatures, particularly after dark. There's a reason why they say don't look at the night watchers or the night marchers. Same thing with men. Yep. As Anne and Patrick said here just a few minutes ago, men here remind me of the fair folk. Some yep. small magical creatures not that you that you do not want to anger. Yep. No, do not anger them. They're little people you never anger. They may be we, but they are my peace. <laughs> just that. Mm-hmm. Vincent is playing with his tea bag at our feet. These are uh, getting marginally better. Now that they're melted a little bit. Now they're melted a little bit. <laughs> Chris was complaining that he wasn't as good as our bartender. On the our bartender at Ito on the sheep ship was hot on. So good. And he said it had some killer tattoo work. Mm. It was from uh, Indonesia, or was it the Philippines? Philippines. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to bounce back over um, to the mainland again, and we're going to go over to Illinois, to the end. <coughs> Enfield Monster. That felt like a seed, even though I know we just got buried from that. No. Pardon. Ah. Hi, Donnie. Elemental, elementals, nature spirits are not to be messed with. No, they are not. Completely agree. They are to be respected. End of story. All right. So um, we're dropping down into southern Illinois, an area known as the Devil's Kitchen. This strange name comes from the Native Americans in an attempt to describe to early settlers the strange sights and sounds that occurred throughout this area. Some believe that anything is possible in Devil's Kitchen, but one of the strangest things rumored to have been there is the Enfield Monster. The story of this beast starts April 25th of 1973. That evening, 10-year-old Greg Garrett was playing uh, playing in his family's home backyard when he was attacked by a strange monster. The aftermath, Greg described the creature as having at least three legs Slimy gray skin, claws, and red eyes. Paralyzed by fear as the creature approached, Greg said the creature clawed at him, tearing his sneakers to shreds. Panicked, Greg ran back to his house as the first person to encounter what would become known as the Enfield Monster. His experience would be far from the last. Shortly after Greg's experience, Henry McDaniel and his family encountered the same being. At about 9 p.m., he heard scratching at his front door. Curious as to what was making the noise, Henry opened the door. Before him, he saw the same beast Greg had described to Caramite Tim. It stood about five feet tall with a flat body, grayish in color, and with a strange disappearing head at at least 12 inches across. It had three legs and two pink eyes the size of flashlight lenses. Getting past his shock and disbelief, Henry shot the creature, hitting it once. The monster hissed at Henry and like a uh, wounded wildcat and then bounded away, covering about 50 feet and three hops. That's some sort of Lovecraftian nightmare going on right there. Yeah, it is. Henry's wife then telephoned the state police. When the local police arrived at the McDaniel house, they discovered a dog-like footprint with six toes near the railroad. 
That night, over the following hours, nearly 50 to 75 residents of Enfield covered or converged near the McHenry home to discuss the strangeness that had descended upon the town. By April 27th, only two days after the first encounter, stories of the monster were released to the AP and UPI news services, and they were being printed throughout Illinois. It is notable that Henry McDaniel was specifically cited as a rational and sober person. Less than two weeks later, on May 6th, Henry awoke in the middle of the night to dogs howling. When he looked out of his door, curious as to what was causing this behavior, he saw the monster once again by the nearby railroad tracks. This time, Henry kept his gun holstered and watched. The creature, keeping to itself, moved away down the railroad tracks. If it knew Henry was there, it gave no acknowledgement to the man who had shot him just days earlier. The appearances brought news reporters, monster hunters, and other curious types to Enfield, and more people came forward to report their own encounters with the fearful creature. Rick Rainbow and three others with him spotted the same slimy monster near an abandoned house close by McDaniel. It ran away from them. But they gave it the same description, except they described the expanse as duped over. Presently, Rick got it uh, leaving whale on tape, and this whale was also heard by Lorraine Coleman, a paranormal investigator who had traveled to Enfield to help investigate. Like the others, he first heard the whale near the McDonald's home. The extensive search failed to turn up the monster. Speculation as to the monster's identity ranged from that of a Escaped kangaroo to an escaped ape to an extraterrestrial. A few weeks later, the sighting and the experience was ended. No definitive explanation has ever been given. Some compared it to a sort of missing link in the evolutionary chain. Others simply shrugged because things like that just happen to occur in the devil's kitchen. This case does lead to a rather fun question, though. Do cryptoids move or do they go on vacation like humans? If so, this might explain why stories of the Enfield Horror began to disappear as a new creature, the Mount Vernon Monster, showed up in Virginia. People started hunting the Mount Vernon Monster in 1979 after its muted but disturbing whales began startling local residents. The Washington Post interviewed a local game warden, Ralph Sickman, during the height of these odd noises he indicated that they were absolutely real. Police officers even looked for the source of the nocturnal wailing, though they dismissed the locals who reported seeing the creature that sounded awful like the Enfield Horror. So many people reported seeing the Enfield Horror during this brief span of just a few days that it caught the attention of sociologists. While they may or may not believe the monster is real, the sociologists confirmed a very real thing happened to every witness. David L. Miller and a team of researchers from Western Illinois University determined that the Enfield horror grew into a social concern. In other words, people became convinced. They saw or they heard something that wasn't there and they believed in the creatures. So, so petting the Enfield monster is like playing Russian roulette with what kind of creature you're going to pet. Sounds like a blast. Well, Patrick, this makes sense for you. Yeah, it really kind of It is. really is. It because really you are the one who wanted us to do the werewolf episode, so I pulled in another werewolf story. So, now, kind of sort of werewolf. It is a werewolf, but it's not called a werewolf. No, it's not. So, anyway. We're going to la <laughs> so we're taking it down to Louisiana. Yeah. Now, when the full moon hangs high over Louisiana swampland, one will be wise to be extra mindful of the wildlife on the bayou. As the frogs croak their songs and mosquitoes buzz about the soy first trees, the out-of-place sound of a wolf's howl will sometimes join in chorus. Wolves are not native to Louisiana. As a matter of fact, the closest natural wolf habitat is about 700 miles away in West Texas. If you were daring enough to try and track down the mysterious howls, you may come across something that seems to be straight out of science fiction or fantasy. A snarling beast standing on two legs, throwing its head back to howl like the moon. But this terrifying creature is not what you think. It is not 
called a werewolf. It's what those in Louisiana called the rougerou. 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 The history of the rougerou is centuries old and has many different origins. But the earliest mentions of the infamous mythical, infamous mythical Louisiana werewolf comes from medieval France. Back in the day of armor, swords, and jousting, there was a lot more to fear than the plague and witches. These called Lucro, which means werewolves in French, were also infamous throughout the uh, country. We actually covered this, con uh, this topic in greater detail back in January of 2021 when we dedicated an entire show to these famous creatures. And contrary to popular belief, France is the ancestral home of werewolves, not Germany. Germany has their fair share, but France is really kind of where, where, where it's at when it comes to werewolves. Now, in the old world, villagers would capture people they believed to be a loop guru and then hold a public trial. Usually they find someone in the woods or someone in the village who was just acting strange. The court would ask the public if they believed they accused to be a loop guru, and usually the public agreed, mainly for fear that they'd be outed as a witch or a loop guru themselves. A loop guru became a fear for many people in the country, leading them to earn their place in legend passed down to children. The French Catholics claimed that you would be turned into a loop guru if you did not follow the rules of Lent for seven consecutive years. There was also a story that was told to kids that if they didn't do what their parents asked, a loop guru would come and steal them away in the middle of the night. There's that, a lot of those tales. That's totally a story I would tell our kids if we had them. A lot of the changes. Yeah. Anyways, when many of the French migrated to Canada and the southern United States, they took the legend of the loop guru with them. Since the migration, many of these legends began to change to match the times and the dialect. Since Cajun dialect is a mix of French and English and well-known for changing words completely to roll off the tongue easier, the name of the beast changed from Luperu to Rougerou, also spelled Rougarou, Rougarou, and Rougarou. And it sounds so cool when you roll your R, <laughs> which I can't do. Rougarou? Rougarou? There you go. Anyway. That sounds like you're wrong. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow I don't think they're wrong. Excuse me. Anyway. No, no. In the swamps within the greater New Orleans area and the Ar Acadiana is where this beast has become has been known to live. He might even be neighbors with the Honey Island Swamp Monster, which is also known as Louisiana's Bigfoot of the Swamp. Cajun legend says that the beast hunts down Catholics who don't follow the rules of Lent, which is similar to the telling of the old French stories. He wants to get ready to go out hunting. Yep. Tis the season. Tis the season. Another telling of the story says that the Rougerou is under a 101-day curse unless the affected person can transfer the curse to another human being. Their curse usually comes from a local witch, sometimes the voodoo priestess. It is said that you can protect yourself against the Rougerou by laying 13 small objects by your doors. Apparently, when a person changes into a Rougerou, they forget how to count past 12, probably since they only worry about midnight and the moon at this point. The Rougerou will see the 13 objects, try to count them, and be unable to count them all. This will perplex it, and it will keep recounting until the sun comes up and it must flee. Despite the fact that it was originally a legend, there are still claimed sightings of the Rougerou to this day, though it has died off a bit in the past decade. The beast is also a hit in pop culture in Louisiana. There is an annual Rougerou festival in Huma every year, and the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans has a Rougerou exhibit, which includes a statue of the creature in all its swampy glory. Thank you. Not my that is your Louisiana werewolf, the Rougerou. What? Is he stinky? No. His breath. No, oh, his breath is atrocious. His breath is atrocious. Ah. It's just not on my finger. Oh. I mean, Lulu could actually be starting the ginger to the Wrangler with him. <laughs> Oh, 
know Pat Patrick has heard of the Rougerie before. It was in the original Werewolf episode. I don't remember covering Rougerie. I don't remember doing that one. But we, we didn't I, check this. Admittedly, I did not go back and check, but I, I probably basically stuffed a year up when we did that. No, because there was a few Werewolf episodes here. Okay. I mean, obviously, I know there's werewolf stories in America, but I thought the ones we did in the episode were mostly old werewolves. Yes, most of them, but there were a few new ones. Busy. It's been a long day. (laughs) And I have to open the shop tomorrow. Oh, oh, Petra says, oh, my dad, Chris, he said said we covered, we covered it. We covered werewolves. In general, yeah. not specifically the version. Okay, no yeah. problem. Yep. That was okay. just a little misunderstanding. That was more I asked him, like, did we cover this? I don't know if we covered this. No, 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 don't worry, don't worry. We're all good. It's all good. There's a lot of things out there, so who knows? We might cover a few things we've done before. We might accidentally stumble upon things that we did before one day. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, we are going to return to Haunted Ireland with our next episode. Tis the season. Yes, it is the season. Um, I know we did 100 Ireland way before we were doing the, the Facebook Live shows. We did it originally with the, uh, uh, <laughs> with the Vibe Network. It was one of our first um, international ones that we did. Yep. And uh, so I'm going to return to, to Ireland, and then we're also going to do a Flint Wales following that one. Uh, and so we're going to have a little bit of fun with some new stories. Yep. We got it. There's more, so many stories. There and, and as you may have noticed in the title of this show, this is uh, American Cryptid Part 1. So there'll be more coming up. I just, I, I the the second script is basically already done. It's just it's got to be edited. Yep, it's got to be edited, and we'll, we'll get to it probably in a couple, two, three months' time or something. Yes. Once these, uh, once the boys are, by that point, the boys will be big enough we can talk about them being weird cats. I'm pretty sure Nico's a beast. He's a boss. He's a beast. And he wants to be cold. Like a baby. <laughs> he wants to be cuddled badly. Uh, I feel fences behind me. Yep, I'm losing my feet. You are being pushed out uh, for feet. But, yeah, so, anyway, thank you so much again for watching tonight. We have been, uh, we've been really busy. Yes. And I like that you we've been on our cruise. Yeah, yeah, but the, uh, the, two weeks ago, we got back two weeks ago. At like two o'clock in the morning before we did the show, our last show, which I don't, two weeks ago was a blur. I don't even remember anymore. But um, yeah, so we, uh, yeah, been busy. Since then, we had um, our our last uh, um, special winter tours of the season. We had our uh, Our John Marshall Marshall tour and uh, sold out Pup Hop on this past Saturday. So that was a lot of fun. now, I say the last ones. It's just the last ones that are on the calendar for now. I'm sure they will be bringing, back, bringing them back sometime in the not too distant future. Yes, yeah, we but, just got to consult calendars with our, our co-workers our, on that one. Yep. Yeah. So we will be, we'll get them back at some point in time. And in the meantime, um, March is coming up. So that's crazy busy month. Crazy busy month. It is party month in the city of Richmond. Uh, Churchill Iris Festival is the last weekend of the month. So I will have a table. Uh, there, so come by, see us, check us out. Um, we also will be doing the Churchill Children Tour all that weekend, uh, so you can learn about the spooky stuff that is taking place around the festival. Yep. So we got it. Um, Churchill Chillers at eight o'clock on Friday night, eight o'clock on Saturday night, and yes. seven o'clock on Sunday night that weekend. Yes. Because we're it's a it's a Churchill weekend. We're going to be going to be right here on the block all weekend long. Um, and just after that, in April, um, you guys all know that we support the Scares That Care charity. They are doing a brand new event in April. It's called AuthorCon, and it's all horror authors and writers, and um, they're going to have a wonderful weekend down in Williamsburg again, so definitely check that out. It's the same web page as Scares That Care. They each have their own little buttons, so you can go and see um, what uh, is going to be available and the uh, in terms of workshops, 
uh, who are some of the presenters that are going to be there, and of course there will be lots of vendors as well. It's at the Doubletree in Williamsburg, so definitely go and check that out. I do believe the one ticket to purchase covers the entire weekend. I believe that's what it was last time I saw it. Um, we won't be being there that weekend, but we will try to make it down for a day. Yeah. And uh, speaking of other things that we sponsor, yeah. I, also at the end of next month, coincidentally, of course, the same weekend as the Churchill Irish Festival. Because everything's that weekend. Everything's going to be that weekend. We are uh, sponsoring the RVA um, Burlesque Festival. Yes. Which, which is I, back again, finally. Yeah, finally, yeah. yeah it, well, back again? It was it, virtual for a, a uh, little bit. Okay, yeah. Um, but anyway. It's actually in person now. Yep, so we have friends that are in the burlesque community, and uh, we decide to uh, step up and uh, help support that community by uh, sponsoring the RVA Burlesque Festival that is going to be uh, that last weekend yeah. in uh, in March. So if you're interested in that, just look up RVA Burlesque Festival, mm -hmm. and you'll find them there on Facebook, Instagram, website, all that good stuff, and you can figure out them. Um, and they've been it. announcing who's going to be there. Um, yeah. people from up. all over the place. Yeah, so, so definitely check it out. Support the Burley Group. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, as always, a friendly reminder that we are basically down to, like, roughly T-minus 10 months until uh, Haunted Key West. Yeah. So, yeah. Please sign up and come and join us. We have a few slots left. We definitely want to get those filled. So please sign up, and it will be a lot of fun. It's going to be a blast. Yeah. But, yeah, we got a lot of territory to cover between now and then, and hope that you all can uh, – Come on out and see us sooner and later, for that matter, because we're doing spooky stuff and all that all the time. So, yeah, hope to see you soon. And uh, as always, if you ever want to uh, uh, drop us a note, ask questions, chat about something before our next uh, before our next show, please feel free to reach out. Send us an email, shoot us a note via Facebook, all that good stuff. We'd love to chat with you all. So, um, yeah. Until then, we will see you in two weeks for Haunted Ireland. Yep. In the meantime, cheers, y'all. Cheers.